What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. And this is that first quote, if you could flash it up on the screen. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. Really, the whole of this quote is found in that first paragraph. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's what A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. There is a measureless difference between the God in our minds and the God on the lips of Jesus. A measureless difference. And the entirety of human life rests upon which we believe, which God we believe, the God in our minds or the God on the lips of Jesus. The main question I'm going to be considering today, and I'll ask you to consider with me, is, is the God in our mind different than the God on the lips of Jesus? So keep that before you. Most of us are fresh off of Thanksgiving celebrations, uh, which most likely included too much food, probably a little bit too much friends and family, um, and probably too much shopping as well. Black Friday, Super Saturday, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Sunday, Cyber Monday, which all exist for the sake of a sale that many of us are trying to take advantage of as Christmas is quickly approaching and we need to get gifts. I can't front. I did a little bit of online shopping as well. As I was online uh, early Friday morning, I saw a, a hashtag show up on Twitter. It read, Black Friday Fights. Y'all are laughing because you saw some of them as well. You might even have been one of those fights. But as you can imagine, it, it was a plethora of people brawling at various shops and stores, all for the sake of saving a few bucks on a flat screen TV or a vegetable steamer or something else to give as a present. See, this is yet another example of what I said last week in the first part of this two-part mini-series entitled Whoever Forever, that humanity's best falls hopelessly short of God's holiness. See, this willingness to fight someone and hurt someone, proof that you don't care about them, so that you can get something to give to someone that you do care about as proof that you care about them. See, human expressions of love to those that we do care about often come at the cost of those who we don't care about. That's how we exchange love. Human love is so conditional, discriminatory, and finite. Whereas God's love is unconditional, undiscriminating, and infinite. Frankly, this juxtaposition between human attempts at love and God's very embodiment as love causes so much complication within the Christian framework and really the human framework of experiencing and expressing love. Our attempts at love and God's embodiment as love. This is what I'm saying. Because God in his very person is love 
And we in our very persons are not God. The best that we can do is attempt to express that which God always is. It's like a child playing house compared to a husband and wife whom out of their very existence, their marriage, their union, their essence, have produced the house and the family and the very children that are mimicking them. The child may mimic the small glimpses of what they perceive is house or home or marriage or family, but the child is completely incapable of truly grasping the very nature of what they're mimicking. If you weren't with us the last Sunday, we got a glimpse of this juxtaposition. Who God is and our weak and feeble attempts of mimicking him in the first half of our series. Where we're considering the most famous of all scriptures, John 3.16. I was with some friends last night. They said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, I'm afraid to tell you because if I tell you, then you won't come because John 3.16 is so familiar. Go ahead and find John 3.16 in your Bible. Uh, You can also follow along with my sermon notes uh, in our app in the section that reads sermon notes. And if you're finding uh, the app, please don't look at Cyber Sunday sales. I know that's enticing, but just rock with me for a few minutes. As a bit of context, we're right in the middle of a conversation between Jesus, the God-man, and Nicodemus, the religious man. Again, Jesus is this common and controversial carpenter turned teacher. And Nicodemus is a prestigious Pharisee, cluttered with credentials and covered with clout. Nicodemus, while risking ridicule from his fellow religious rulers, has used the darkness of nightfall to safely sneak to Jesus. While Nicodemus was seeking to engage Jesus in a theological rendezvous, Jesus has all but devastated his hopes of a casual conversation. While completely collapsing Nicodemus' worldview with the ever-famous words, and you can follow along with me here, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Last week we covered the first half of this verse, so if you weren't with us, I encourage you to check it on our app or podcast. The first half of this declaration would have devastated the ideas of God that Nicodemus had in his mind. Completely devastated the God in his mind. For at least three reasons, which is all found in the, in the language of the first part of the verse. So I'm, I'm briefly going to summarize this because we spent our time there last week. First, God loved. These are three things that devastate Nicodemus' idea of God in his mind. God loved. The attitude of the Pharisees specifically, and really in general of anyone that depends upon religion for their own self-righteousness, is to have disgust and disdain towards humanity. So God's love would have been not only counterintuitive to Nicodemus, but actually a point of conflict. The God on the lips of Jesus didn't agree with the God in Nicodemus' mind. Second, the world. Nicodemus was not only a religious bigot, but he would have been racially and ethnically prejudiced as well. So this, arguably, more than anything, would have set Nicodemus off. The Pharisees, Nicodemus being one of them, were waiting and wanting for the Messiah to return for the sake of reestablishing Israel's place as the preeminent world power with all of the political and military and socioeconomic prestige that came with that place. So the idea that God would have affection for the world, right? Not only Israel, not only the Jews, but all of the idolatrous and pagan Gentile world, like most of us here, would have been beyond Nicodemus. 
That's like, uh, if I can get, you know, into my prejudices a little bit, that's like telling conscious hip-hop heads that God loves trap rappers. I can't get it. That's like telling Tea Party conservatives that God loves left-wing liberals or telling extremist Christians that God loves extremist Muslims. That's like telling radical pro-lifers that God loves those who practice pro-choice. And thirdly, he gave his one and only son because Nicodemus trusted in himself. He trusted in his practice of and obedience to the law of Moses. So maybe someone else needed a Messiah. Maybe someone else needed righteousness and salvation and holiness for their standing before a just and flawless and perfect God, but not Nicodemus. He didn't need that. He had himself. He had his own back. He had his own obedience to the law. You only need a savior if you can't save yourself. So, by the time we arrive at the second portion of John 3.16, Nicodemus may have needed to take a seat. Because Jesus not only declared that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, but he did so with the intention that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Again, I ask the question, is the God in our mind different than the God that is on the lips of Jesus? And what we'll see here in the second half of John 3.16 on the lips of Jesus are four distinctly different realities about God than most men and women carry with them. I've organized these four realities into four words that start with a D if they're helpful, grateful, uh, if, if they're helpful, great, if not, just forget about them. Discriminate, decide, deliver, destiny. First, we'll deal with discriminate, which we see in the word whoever. Whoever literally means individually, or more specifically, each, every, any, all. Do you see any discrimination here whatsoever? Nicodemus discriminated against Gentiles, non-Jews, us for the most part. And throughout the Gospels, we see Nicodemus' cohort, his homeboys, the other Pharisees, discriminating even against Israel, even against Jews. There's a famous account, I'm sure some of you guys are familiar with it. It's in Matthew 26, and it's in Mark 14, and it's in Luke 7, which is where I'm drawing from this morning, which disturbs one of the Pharaoh. Uh, one of the fellow Pharisees. One of the Pharisees had invited Jesus into his home to eat dinner with him. A nice and orderly and sophisticated and kind of stuffy get-together, right? You've been to one of those lately? Well, Jesus accepts the invitation, and somehow people find out where he's going to be and when he's going to be there. Then a woman shows up, uninvited, but not unprepared. She brought something with her, not a party favor, but an expensive gift nonetheless, and it wasn't for the host, but for the guest of honor. Passing by the Pharisee and settling in behind Jesus, she begins to weep. Awkward, right? Think about a dinner party you've been to, and an uninvited guest comes in and settles behind the guest of honor and just starts to cry. Tears that she then uses to wet Jesus's feet. Then she scandalously uncovers her hair, lets her hair down, and uses it as a towel, wiping her tears from Jesus' feet, drawing close, continuing to sob, and kissing Jesus' feet. Donning her party favor, an alabaster flask of ointment, she poured the ointment onto Jesus' feet, anointing him. This was enough to muster a response out of the otherwise proud and particular and prestigious Pharisee. 
Well, if this man were a prophet, let alone the Messiah, he would know what kind of woman this is. He would know what kind of woman is touching him, a sinful woman. I love this stuff if you spend some time in the scriptures. Interestingly, uh, Luke's account says that he said it to himself, right? And I kind of know some people like that. They're, they're, they're too uh, shook. They're too much of punks. They're too much of suckers to actually speak up. So I wonder if he said it silently or if he didn't say it at all. And Jesus knew his heart. Jesus knew his mind. He was discerning and shrewd enough to speak to it. Jesus does speak loud and clear through a parable back to this Pharisee. He says, if a money lender had two debtors, one who owed a great amount and one who owed a small amount, but both were equally unable to pay the lender, and he canceled both of their debts, the great amount and the small amount, which of the debtors do you think would love the money lender more? Simon, which is the name of this Pharisee, responds, the one with the greater debt, I suppose. Jesus tells Simon, you judge rightly. That is correct. Then, continuing to speak to Simon, Jesus turns to the woman. Speaking to Simon, turns to the woman. The disruptive, disorderly, dramatic, sinful woman. Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. Then for the first time, Jesus speaks to the woman, your sins are forgiven, he says to her. Then those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? These guys are just so missing the point. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. As a side note, especially as we deal with the holidays, Think about this. If you want things to say nice and orderly, sophisticated, status quo, and socially acceptable, do not invite Jesus into them. So what's going on here? Well, we find something similar throughout the scriptures, which is something Elihu told Job. He says, God shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of his hands which is the bedrock of what's clearly communicated in Romans 2.11. In the NIV it reads, God does not show favoritism. In the ESV it reads, God shows no partiality. In the King James Version, perhaps my favorite, it says, for there is no respect of persons with God. Meaning, God is not impressed by what you think is your goodness, nor is God insulted by what you think is your badness. He's no respecter of persons. Because to God, there are only two persons, Adam and Jesus Christ. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. And to clarify, you are in Adam by birth, but you can be in Christ by belief, which is your decision. Decision is our second heading, the second reality on Jesus' lips, and seen in the word, believes. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Believes in the Greek is uh, pistuo, which primarily means to think, to be true. And while this may seem like Christianity 101, this is a significant distinction when you're speaking to a Pharisee. A Pharisee who thinks that his belief in God plus his behavior 
in his obedience to the law is how God measures him. Just a few chapters over, if you were to flip to John 6, there would be this uh, interesting interaction where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And then some of these people follow after Jesus and eventually they ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And I wonder if you guys ever think about that. What does God want for me? What does he require of me? What do I have to do for God? What is my obligation to God? Jesus replies, this is the work of God that you believe, pastuo, in him whom he sent. This is the work that you have to do, believe in God. It seems that the lay folk as well as the vocational religious rulers were both plagued by the notion that what was required of them to be accepted by God was work. Observance, obedience, perfection, rinse, repeat, repent. Work, observe, obey, perfect, rinse, repeat, repent. If Jesus were interested in clarifying the necessary equation for salvation, acceptance before God, intimacy and nearness to God, fellowship with God, it seems like he would have uh, talked to someone who was academically able to discuss those details. Someone like a Pharisee, someone like Nicodemus. But what Jesus tells Nicodemus is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I mentioned that this may seem like Christianity 101, this notion that all one must do in order to be saved, uh, order to be saved, to go to heaven, to have everlasting life, is believe in Jesus. After all, that's the cornerstone of what distinguishes Christianity. From Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, intellectualism, Darwinism. But if you dig a little bit deeper, if you decide to spend your Sunday afternoon uh, perusing the internet for theological discourse, if you do that, don't call me, please. I'll be resting, having a meal, kicking it with my family. But if you dig a little deeper, you begin to find countless Christian critics of this reality who fear the concept of, quote, easy believism. They're afraid of it. And maybe it is easy for the believer. But do you know who it was not easy for? Say it if you know the Sunday school answer. Jesus, sure enough. And maybe that's what's so offensive, that Jesus not only did all of the hard work, but that Jesus did all of the work, period. After all, it was Jesus who said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Not only did Jesus fulfill the law, perfectly keeping the righteous commands of God bodily, which is just wild. But he was also crushed by the law for the men and women who are so pitifully incapable of keeping the requirements of the law. And do you know who those men and women are? Me. You. The Pope and the President. Gandhi and Hitler. The Pharisees and the pagans, the believers and the non-believers. When these people argue easy believism, they push back on the simple evident meaning of the word pastuo, translated believe. They say, well, it's not just believe. It's not just believe. It's true belief. It's real belief. It's authentic belief. It's the kind or quality or condition of belief that leads to life change and repentance and fruit and an entire list of largely subjective, rather arbitrary behaviors which are supposed to be the proof of salvation. Oddly enough, those very behaviors are what guys like Nicodemus 
we're so good at. The kinds of externally observable behavior modifications that led Jesus to make this declaration of the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. My friends, can I tell you the only guaranteed, fireproof, sure enough, absolute way to know that you have the assurance of salvation? I don't mean to be redundant here, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The assurance of our salvation is not by the quality or condition of our faith. It is about the quality and the condition of which we set our faith upon, Christ. Do you believe in him? By the way, while belief in Jesus is weighty and is significant, if you don't find yourself yet believing in Jesus, let me assure you, you are a believer. Each of us deal in the currency of belief, faith, trust. We place that currency upon something or someone. The religious person, regardless of their persuasion, whether they're religious Christian or Hindu, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist, Mormon, they place their belief, their faith, their trust upon themselves. Oddly enough, the atheist and the agnostic place their belief, faith, and trust on the same object, themselves. Jesus didn't leave anything unclear. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe in him? That decision is yours and yours alone to make for yourself. And Jesus says if you decide to believe in him, you will be delivered. Which brings us to the third reality on the lips of Jesus that is so different from the God in so many minds of modern people even more so than in Nicodemus' mind. We're confronted with this third reality of being delivered, which we see in Jesus' language, shall not perish. These three little words, shall not perish, are actually just one word in the Greek. They bring us modern folk face-to-face with what so many perceive as a primitive monster of the Middle Ages, the existence of hell. The single word apollomy means to be destroyed or to be lost. And it's often used in the gospel to refer to the destruction of souls in hell. Which is clearly in the view in John 3.16 as shall not perish is set against the offer of eternal life. Which we'll get to, but let me get us all a little bit more uncomfortable. Not only is perishing set against life, but the length of perishing and the perishing experience can be inferred by the length of the offer of life. Eternal life, meaning perishing is also eternal. And if I were to play uh, Mr. Obvious for so many of us who are hearing this, uh, I'd say that most of us don't like that. We don't like that idea. We don't like that notion. We push back on that. It doesn't settle in well. There are many layers to that onion, uh, but a primary layer of that onion goes like this. How can a good God send anyone to an eternal perishing or punishment. How could a good God do that? As a matter of fact, what kind of a nutcase, ego trip, and psychotic, villainous character would even create such a place? I mean, I don't know if you guys have these conversations or if you think these things by yourselves. You're safe to if you'd like to. But let us consider the context yet again. 17 and 18 here, considering the context uh, as we answer that layer of the onion. 
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So the question that is often posed, which I posed before, is actually misstated. Because God doesn't send anyone to hell. And I'm not acting like this is easy, uh, intellectual, like jumping jacks. This is significant stuff, and I realize that. Uh, But God doesn't send anyone to hell. He doesn't have to, because the default trajectory of the human condition is towards perishing. We are en route to perishing. For those who are not believers, we are already perishing. And this default setting has been set because of our inclusion in Adam. Remember, we're in Adam by birth. Adam chose rebellion before he sinned, quote, by eating the apple. He made the primary sin, which is that of disbelief. He disbelieved God and then ate the apple. Disbelief is essentially choosing autonomy from God. Autonomous. So as humans, we're born into this earth into the shackles of an inherited disposition towards disbelief, a desire for autonomy. Can any of my married people give me an amen on the desire for autonomy? That autonomy, that godding of one's own life is what has introduced all of the consequences of sin into our human experience. Death, destruction, despair, disappointment, evil, insanity. And if you consider the mass of the autonomous Adams, Adam and then everyone who has came after Adam in his lineage, living more and more into their autonomy, into eternity, that's what perishing looks like. All these people living more and more into their autonomy, into all of eternity. Essentially, an eternal Black Friday. (laughs) An eternal Black Friday fights. An experience of always and unquenchably going for self. Seeking this finite and limited concept of love and pleasure and joy and satisfaction, which necessitates excluding other autonomous atoms, other men and women who are made in the image of God, but who we treat like less than or other or opposite of us. Perishing through this eternal walk of Adam's autonomy away from God which we've inherited by birth, which I know I sought and served for many years. You didn't have to come to my bedside when I wake up and say, okay, Sean, who are you interested in serving today? Yourself or God Almighty? Because my natural human inclination was to go for myself 100% of the time with all my energy. And again, this perishing through this eternal walk away from Adam's autonomy uh, is... The same autonomy, which in order to live and thrive and grow and sustain itself, requires that it cut itself off from the truth of who God is, creating a different truth, which is actually a lie. It requires that it cut itself off from the beauty of who God is, redefining beauty, which is actually disgusting. It requires that it cut itself off from the order of who God is, seeking to recreate its own order, which is actually chaos. It requires that it cut itself off from the peace of who God is, seeking to recreate its own peace, which is actually war. It requires to cut itself off from the harmony of who God is, seeking to redefine harmony, which is actually confusion. That's what we've done by walking away from God 
redefined terms and produced chaos because of it. But what Jesus tells Nicodemus is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, Jesus came to deliver. Jesus came to deliver and offer all of the anonymous atoms a different destiny. Destiny, our fourth and final heading. The destiny of eternal life, which is not only an invitation back to God, which is often how it's treated. You left God, he's inviting you back to him. It's not only that. It's an invitation into the very life of God. And simultaneously, an invitation to have the very life of God make its home in whoever chooses to believe. See, what God is after in the person and work of his son Jesus is not teaching humanity. Like so many people say, Jesus was just a great teacher. He's not after setting an example that we can aspire to. What a wonderful human. I want to be like Jesus when I grow up. That's not what God was after. What God is after is the making of many sons and daughters. That's God's intention in Jesus. While we were created in the the likeness of Jesus, uh, Jesus was begotten of God. And there's a difference. We were created. Jesus was begotten. When we create, we make something that is other than human. But when we begot, when we beget, we create a human. If my wife and I were to have a child, we would uh, beget a child. We would create a human or beget a human. Uh, But we can work on a painting together. We created a painting. It is other than us. And that's the distinction between humans and Jesus. Jesus was begotten of God or He's God himself. We were created in God's image, certainly, but we are other than God. And while Adam sought autonomy, which gave us a predisposition to seek the same, as we do, what God has done in Jesus is invited man back to himself, into himself, into his life, making the created thing the very essence of the creator, going from a creature to a begotten child. Here's how C.S. Lewis says it. C.S. Lewis teaches me to not take myself so serious, to enjoy creativity and simplicity. He says, that is precisely what Christianity is about. The world is a great sculptor's shop, and we are the statues. And there's a rumor going about the shop that some of us someday are going to come to life. The making of many sons in Christ, the one and only son, This is why scripture speaks of Jesus as the last Adam and the second man. See, Jesus has gathered all of Adam's autonomy, all of our autonomousness because we're in Adam, into himself. And Jesus became the sin. And Jesus became the death that our autonomy produced. As Philippians says, uh, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. While some have in their minds this notion of a God who is angry and demanding, and difficult, who wants to take from us, and limit us, and subdue us. The God on Jesus' lips is so very different. He's not an angry God, but a joyful 
and an abundant God. He's not a demanding and difficult God, but a servant and empathetic God, not seeking to take from us and limit us, but seeking to give to us and liberate us. Not seeking to subdue us, but to renew us. God is this like true, beautiful, timeless gentleman who will not force himself upon anyone. He's a gentleman who stands at the door of the hearts of men and women and knocks. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Sounds like that friendship that Jake and the band were singing about a few minutes ago. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the very good news of God himself. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ from his own mouth. Do you believe in the God in your mind or do you believe in the God that is on the lips of Jesus? Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord God, you do not uh, challenge us to... Um, yoke us or leave us in, in, in misery and confusion. Uh, maybe you challenge us to exhaust us, but I think you do so to satisfy us. You challenge our appetites, you challenge our thirsts for us to realize that nothing apart from you satisfies those things. God, I'm challenged by the ideas of you that I have in my mind that are so different than and contradictory to uh, the, the God that Jesus talks about, the God that Jesus claims to be. I want to think rightly and truly of who you are so that I can think rightly and truly of myself. You are abundant. You are eternal. You are everlasting. You need nothing from us. You want to take nothing from us. You don't want to subdue us. You want to renew us. And this is the good news of the gospel that we don't need to believe and obey because our, our obedience is so um, imperfect compared to the obedience of Christ, but that we just need to believe, uh, trust, have faith in uh, the completed work of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. God, we desire a change in our world. We desire change in our city. We desire change in our relationships. Uh, but I think all of that has to come from a change in our hearts. Uh, your offer is to make us new. Not by our addition to what you've done, but by our acceptance of what you've done. And somehow, mysteriously, uh, not in a rote equation or something that I could communicate and say, follow this, but somehow, in time, you make us new. You make us more of ourselves by giving us more of yourself. Lord God, give us uh, hearts and minds to understand, uh, ears to hear, minds to receive. We want to know you uh, so that we can enjoy you for your good, uh, for our good, for the good of our city and for your glory. It's in your name we pray.